It's Rexy's musical podcast. If you went through my record collection, you'd probably find a number of things where you'd say, what the hell is this? The fact is my record collection is loaded with a bunch of stuff that comes from artists that are often difficult to describe and impossible to classify. I actually think that's a good thing because sometimes in between the cracks of chart-topping blockbusters and total obscurity is where you find real flashes of innovation in genius. It's often where you find real trailblazers, the gifted and unique pioneers who don't just define genres, they bend them, or better yet, they create their own. And while many of the greatest artists in history were shunned and ignored and possibly ridiculed in their time, their influence, genius, and legacy often grow over the years through hindsight, reintroduction, and discovery. Today's guest is one of those people. Today I'll be talking to Jim Scafish, the leader of a band credited with single-handedly creating the punk, new wave, and avant-garde music scene in Chicago. The name of the band was Scafish. And if that name seems unfamiliar to you, it may be because that up until 2019, the music of Scafish had been long out of print and largely unavailable. Thankfully, that's changed, and what you have today is some of the most riveting and brilliant and pioneering music of its time. This was music that was being released just two months after the release of Patti Smith's first album in November of 1975, just weeks before the Ramones would be releasing their first single in February of 1976, and nine full months before the Sex Pistols would release their first single in the UK. With very little context to create a punk music scene anywhere, Scafish was ahead of its time on many levels, because the music wasn't just about punk or new wave. What really separated Scafish from anybody else was the shocking nature of its content and presentation. Scafish was performing songs that tackled tough subject matter that was considered wildly controversial at the time. These were not love songs. Scafish tackled subjects like bullying, dysfunctional families, abuse, pedophilia, fat shaming, homophobia, gender identity, and the abuses of the Catholic Church. These conversations might not seem entirely shocking today, but in 1976, these were totally taboo topics that wouldn't become a part of any public dialogue or even open for discussion for another 25 years or longer. But that wasn't the only shocking part. Scafish was fearless in their public performances, based in part because of the often shocking and unapologetic presentation of these songs, oftentimes sparking riots, arrests, and acts of violence directed towards the band itself. And then there was Jim, whose imposing physical presence was both mystifying and often misunderstood. But Scafish was making a point because the abuses depicted in the music were often autobiographical. Was it shocking? Yes. Was it controversial? Hell yes. But make no mistake, this was a band of highly skilled musicians tackling compositions written by a trained and disciplined genius who had come from an extensive background in classical and jazz piano. This is a band that toured the world with the police, XTC, Iggy Pop, Cheap Trick, UB40, The English Beat, and many, many others. If you take one thing away from today's episode, let it be this. Scafish was to Chicago what the Ramones were to New York. And that is an indisputable fact. Even Miles Culpin, who signed Scafish to IRS Records, once said that Jim Scafish is a fucking genius. And he was right. 
Over the last several years, Skatefish has been reissuing the music of the original band from 1976 to 1983, most of which has been out of print for more than 40 years, including the self-titled 1979 debut album Skatefish and the incredible compilation What's This 1976 through 1979 and the previously unreleased bootleg of Jim's 21st birthday performance called Bootleg 21 through 35. He's also about to reissue the long out-of-print second Skafish album, The Conversation. With it, he's also releasing a bunch of songs that were rejected by IRS Records for being too controversial. Songs that have never been heard in any form, ever. That set of music is set to be released later this year. This is a band that deserves every moment of your attention. If there was ever a time to rediscover and reassess a true pioneer way ahead of his time, dabbling in real brilliance, this is it. This is my conversation with the amazing Jim Skafish on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am very good. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have to, since I got my copy... Of the first album, I have obsessions of you. So, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, great, and it's wonderful connecting. I am ready and thrilled and excited. I want to start off by saying I was a college student at Marquette University in Milwaukee back in the '80s, not too far away from the Chicago area. But I remember kind of specifically seeing a copy of the first Skafish record. In, in the campus radio station. And the thing I remember most about it is not actually listening to the record, which I'm you know, embarrassed to say, but what I do remember is there was this writing all over the cover of all the songs that the Jesuits at Marquette did not want us to play. It was probably all of them, right? <laughs> it was, I think, I, yeah, I think uh, Disgracing the Family Name was the only one they wanted us to play or the only one we could get away with. And when I hear the record now, I mean, I, I, I'm just struck by what a complex groundbreaking beautiful record it is in fact it, it it's it, it's almost a shame it's taken decades for people to rediscover this album it's absolutely phenomenal oh geez thank you so much i appreciate that i'm still really getting a big kick out of them censoring all the songs right you know <laughs> and of all things like if they were going to let anything be on it should have probably been maybe one time Right, yeah, right. I mean, it's it's a lilting ballad sort of a thing, as opposed to disgracing the family name, where you're like tearing down generations of tradition, right? <laughs> but no, but thank you very much for the comment on the record. I mean, when we, you know, when we did the record, and leading up to it, several years before, it was always about social commentary. You know, one of the strongest missions of the Skatefish Statement was social commentary and really trying to go musically where no one else had gone. I mean, it was really a very cognitive goal. It wasn't just that we sort of stumbled into this. And there were so many elements that tied into it, really, because if you look that I had a whole lifetime of being bullied pretty much every day, literally pretty much every day. So that factored in to being a social outcast and how that inspired so much of that viewpoint from being on the outside. And then musically, what made it really, as you would use the word complex, is that there was a great deal of musical training within the band. So what people didn't realize is, say, my drummer, Larry Meislivik, had a music degree from DePaul before he joined my band. 
And then Javier Cruz had a music degree from Chicago State. And so there was a lot of classicism, as weird as that may sound. Because when you think of classical, you think of prog rock, right? Sure. And I, I respect those guys, but we weren't trying to do that. So there's this element of rebellion and classicism and free jazz and pop. And of course, when we started, when I started all of this way back in the 70s, the words punk had not yet really been so crystallized. So what we were doing, you know, creating punk and new wave and alternative rock in Chicago and being a part of that sort of vibration too. But one of the things that made it really hard where you're talking about that it took decades for people to rediscover it is that music audiences and especially the gatekeepers are very tribal. So in other words, it's like, well, if you're doing punk, we can maybe accept that. If you're doing, say, progressive jazz or 20th century avant-garde, but it was all put together and in such a way that certain people really related to the rebellious side, and then they might have a hard time with a song that wasn't quite so. Or the avant-garde side got certain people and other people didn't. So it was this really complex sort of a thing. But for us, for me individually and collectively, there was never a consideration of trying to make it fit. You know, if you're saying, well, okay, that this is not really gonna work. And we sort of weren't concerned with that. You know, for me, especially having lived an entire lifetime by that point of being a complete social outcast, that this, it was it. Yeah. In other words, there was no sense of toning it down, making it work. And, you know, especially when I began writing these songs, say around 1973, 74, the ideas were coming in and I was writing them and they were being crystallized. And then when we made our Chicago debut in February of 76, what happened is that the reactions from the audience were often very, very violent, extremely so. And so one of the favorite stories that I have, I don't know if you knew the story or not, but we did a Chicago tour in 1976 and Cheap Trick were big fans of what I was doing and they were coming to the shows and we did a show in their hometown of Rockford in the fall of 76. Rick Nielsen was there. He had on a fur coat and a baseball cap, right? And the audience in unison was rushing the stage to attack us. I mean, the entire audience was like arm in arm coming to the front of the stage, ready to attack us. Rick Nielsen, stood at the front of the stage, facing the audience, a beer bottle over his head, ready to strike the audience, right? So the audience backed off. And I really doubt it was because of Rick's physical prowess, but because of his celebrity status, right? Right. So he kind of saved our lives that night, right? But I'm saying that whole sense of him standing between the stage, facing the audience with the beer bottle ready to strike, they all retreated. But I'm saying that we were experiencing that kind of pushback many, many times. And at the same time, we had an audience that adored us. So it's always at each show, is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Is it going to be this? Is it going to be that? But it was interesting because it never really deterred us. It, it wasn't a sense of, oh, my God, you know, 
like if I had the nose job my mother wanted me to get when I was younger, <laughs> then then just maybe. So we just really wanted to take it that far. And I think for me, especially as the composer of the music, the social commentary was extremely important. You know, with the music, I didn't realize how much people would have a problem with jumping from hardcore punk to progressive jazz to pop to alter or what became alternative to new wave to things that were satirical. You know, I didn't realize how much people would have a problem with that because I figured, well, the musicianship is really good so we could do it. But we got a great deal of pushback. And yet I'd say the right word is that it was controversial because certain people in the press loved us, certain people in the press hated us, right? Well, I think the thing that, that always kind of leaps out at me is, and the more I, I research this, and there's a, there's a lot of things I, I want to ask you about, is sure. that what really is incredible is, yes, you were all those things, punk, you know, progressive jazz, all those things. But in 1974, 1976, there's no blueprint for you guys right. to have followed. I mean, it's really remarkable when you think about, you know, the, the Ramones hadn't released their first single yet. Uh, you know, the Sex Pistols were months away. Do you think the only thing that really precedes you is maybe Patti Smith? And there's really not much comparison to uh, to that. So to have brought all of that musicality and the controversial nature of what you were trying to say, that had never, ever been done, whether it was in Chicago or, or anywhere else. You can't necessarily point the finger and say, well, you, know, you got in inspiration from this thing or that thing. This, this was something that no one had, had ever seen, inc including the reaction of some of the crowd. That's, thank you for that, and I think it's a very on-point comment because when I look back on those days is that there was no blueprint. In other words, and the thing about it is that my sense of audacity, my sense of really not even considering anything but doing it, there was no sense of, well, I should, I shouldn't, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do that. There was no sense of it. So it was really unprecedented. And that was the thing that I felt so compelled to do. Like, in other words, when I was thinking of composing, I was very concerned with making statements about social commentary. And some of those integrated with the horrific bullying that I bullying that I had experienced. So, you know, when we did Joan Fan Club, that was probably the first song ever written about fat shaming. And now fat shaming is a real thing. Back then, it wasn't considered a thing. You know, people right. got called fat and that was just the way it was. And then when I did songs about gay bashing, Knuckle Sandwich, there was nothing like that that was being done. Or, you know, now we see religious fascism is so strong in the world. And Sign of the Cross, written in 1976, protested that before anybody else did. And so it was this kind of sense of flying in the dark, sure, but being so compelled and so obsessed with it that it was mission-driven. And it wasn't mission-driven with any sense of martyrdom or heroism. It was mission-driven, like, you know, when an artist talks about, I can't not not do this. In other words, it was just that obsessive for me. Well, and it's, it's remarkable to me because exactly what you talk about, you know, the abuses of the Catholic Church, homophobia, pedophilia, all, all those things— in 1976, were strictly taboo. We just, you know, we just simply didn't have those conversations. Now they make movies out of these things, and you know, it is part of public discourse. 
you can't say that things have resolved themselves or cleared up, but at least we can have a discussion about what these things mean. You know, back when you were a kid and you were enduring this kind of abuse, I mean, you know, for many people who have been victims of, uh, of bullying, it's very isolating. And that's really true and very on point again. And so what was really shocking about the bullying that I went through, and I feel great empathy for anybody who's ever been bullied. In other words, it's not like I'm just speaking of it from my subjective point of view, is that the teachers and the administrators in school were just as bad. Like I was yeah. choked by a teacher. I was locked in a broom closet by a teacher and the whole school left and I was left in a broom closet locked in. Wow. A teacher threw a desk at me. I was continually bullied. And so the isolation that it gave me, you know, created all of this emotional trauma and psychological trauma. But I saw myself then as the way out of it was through music. Now, what's interesting is that I could have made a career as a classical pianist. And that was something that had been briefly considered because I went into the American Conservatory of Music after high school and enrolled. And I was there for a short time and I thought, I can't do this. I can't do it. And especially when my composition teacher told me, I don't believe in composing for the kitchen utensils. And I thought, I do. Yeah. I'm out of here. Like <laughs> I do. In other words, so, but that was at the end of 75. And at that time, I was in a group called White Lightning. And White Lightning was a group that had Donald Kinsey on guitar. He played for Peter Tosh and Bob Marley. It had Busta Jones on bass, who went on to play with Eno and the Talking Heads. And it had Woody Kinsey, Donald's brother, on drums, who played for Albert King. So we were recording their second album. Okay, and I was added in on keyboards. And Island Records was the label. We were supposed to go to Bob Marley's studio in Jamaica to record the second album. We didn't get there. We ended up in Chicago. But when the label dropped the group and I quit the American Conservatory, that's when I said, I've got to form my own band. It's just It, it just was unstoppable in my mind. And that was January 76 when I put the band together and we debuted in February. You're very fortunate in a lot of ways because you were able to have music as a vehicle to deal with all of this emotional baggage. It sounds like for you that this was a very therapeutic course for you to take. Like, it had this not, had you not had music, this could have gone in a very, very different direction for you. I think that's true. I think it would have gone in a horrifically bad direction, most likely, because what would I, what was I going to do? There was really no social group that I fit into. So it wasn't like I could say, oh, well, you know, there's these kids and I can hang with them or there's this world I could be in. So the isolation was really intense. And so with music being something that was so therapeutic, it became the be all end all. And especially because I was classically trained from the age of six and my mother was an opera singer. And so the musical part was strong. I also studied with Willie Pickens, jazz legend, mm -hmm. and as a teenager at the American Conservatory, again, when I was still in high school, I was trained in theory, classical organ at Indiana University Northwest. So what I'm saying is that all of that was the backdrop to have this wide palette of music, but the social commentary with what I lived through, they fused together. So let's say I would never think of doing a song where people are just like soloing and showing off, you know, it just didn't do anything for me. It seemed kind of 
not really my sensibility, not to criticize it, right? So I thought, well, I'm going to put the musical virtuosity into what the lyric statements are, because the lyric statements became so, so important to me. That was really the fuel. What does this song want to say, right? Like say when I did Sink or Swim, the bonus track on the reissue, Sink or Swim was about the idea that my mother had continually reminded me that I was an accident. Like every time the teachers hated me, every time everybody was making fun of me, she'd remind me that I was an accident. So, you know, in a not nice way, it wasn't like, oh, you were an accident, but you're great. It was like, you know, you were an effing accident. So I wrote Sink or Swim. And Sink or Swim, even though put in the third person, is that story about the idea of disregarding a baby and not caring for the baby and hating the baby and, you know, tossing it away. So all of these things had both social tie-in a vision of what the future was going to become. I've always had that. I've always had the ability to see where the world was going way, way before it happened. Plus the subjective part of the pain and suffering I was going through. There's no way to talk about Skayfish and not talk about the impact of the live presentation of the music. I mean, you, you talked about angry mobs of the audience going after the band, but there were many times where there were riots, the uh, the famous uh, gig with, with Shanana. All these things had a certain aesthetic to it that I think just made what you were doing increasingly more shocking. And maybe and, and that was the, maybe the most compelling thing about it. Tell me about those shows and, and what you were doing to inflame people in the crowds. Well, you know, the Shanana story was a very interesting one because when we did the Shanana show, there were 6,000 people in the audience. So from the beginning, I mean, we're doing songs like Knuckle Sandwich, you know, all of the early songs that we were doing. So the audience was really having a hard time. They were throwing things. They were, you know, giving us the finger, all that stuff. So here's the climax of the show. Okay. I stripped down to an old lady's old fashioned one piece bathing suit with a matching babushka and put on lipstick on my face. And that was it. The audience rushed the stage. Now, when they were getting ready to do this, the Chicago police had to stop the show. It was getting that out of hand. One of my friends who was filming the event from the audience noticed there was somebody pointing a gun at me from the audience. Wow. So the person who was filming the show and, you know, there was somebody standing right next to him who had a gun pointing it at me on stage. Right before that event could have happened of me being shot or shot at, the police stopped the show. And the police came on stage and stopped it. So with that kind of a show, it was, I guess you could say it was like being in the middle of war because for the way that we were, and it became a blueprint for the entire career, the show didn't stop. And I mean, not meaning it in some sort of vaudevillian way, but the show didn't stop. So we weren't really going to stop the show. It's like, we weren't going to run off stage or try to talk to the audience or talk them down or whatever. And like, you know, Parents were covering their children's eyes during the set because it was this whole thing of the queer element, the the transgender element, all of that totally flipped people out. And I mean, this was an audience that was very apple pie America, right? Right. And not even criticizing that. I'm just saying that this was an audience there to relive, you know, the 50s. Not the rock and roll part that I love, like I love Little Richard and his rebellion, but this sort of more nicey, 
you know, boy meets girl convertibles, malt shakes kind of a thing, right? That was the appeal of Sean Anna throughout their entire career. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and but I'm saying it was people who were there for that sensibility. And the thing about it is that the violence. And I remember after that show, I felt out of sorts for an entire week. Mm. Like it, it was just the energy. It was so vile. And, and it was so close to us being potentially killed, literally, that it was like for a week, I felt sort of, you know, I don't want to say disassociative, but it was like almost like I had really been through something, you know, and it was that kind of a thing. That was a really rough gig. And the thing about it, too, is that, you know, Billboard did a piece on it. And that was that was cool. The press and all that was was there. But I'm saying that this was the kind of thing that happened many, many times. The stories just go on and on and on and on. Right. Right. And the thing about it is that by the time that Sid Vicious created this brawl, this riot at our New York show in December of 1978, it was scary how used we were to it. So when Sid Vicious caused this brawl, we just kept playing. Like, we played through it, you know, which is what we had to do. But what ties into the first album there is that Ian Copeland, brother of Miles Copeland, was at the New York show at Hurrah, which was very instrumental to us getting signed to IRS Records. According to Miles Copeland, I was the first American artist in the second worldwide to be signed to IRS. That was what he had said. And that was on the onset of 1979. But with the Sid Vicious thing, that he was supposedly a fan of my band, came to see us in New York, right? He started flirting with Tara. Now, Tara is Otara from the Knack. That's Tara. And it's because we did a show with a group in L.A. called the Sunset Bombers. They opened for us at the Whiskey in early 78. Doug Figer was a member of that band before he formed the Knack. He became obsessed with Tara, and he wrote the song Otara about Tara. So Tara was this really lovely, beautiful really gorgeous girl, right? Sid was flirting with her, pinching her, flirting with her. She was dating Todd Smith, Patty Smith's brother at the time. Okay? okay. And they were watching the stage for us. And Todd was a really laid back guy. He just wanted to go up to Sid and say, flirt with her after the set. It wasn't even like, don't flirt with my woman. And then Sid took a beer bottle, struck it over Todd's face, almost took out his eye. Wow. Blood was everywhere. Now, Jimmy Sons, singer of the Shadows of Night, was our road manager at the time. It was Jimmy Sons who ran out from behind the board, grabbed Sid, punched him, dragged him through the club, and threw them down the flight of stairs. So I'm saying that kind of thing, unfortunately, it was sort of commonplace, but that was the day that really led to us being signed. I'm not aware how much Miles Copeland was aware of me before then, but Ian was there at that show, and it was right after that, within weeks, that we were signed. I interviewed Miles Copeland in uh, 2021. Uh, he had just uh -huh. he had just released um, his memoirs, his and uh, you know I read the book and and he, you know he talked inside the book he talks about you know all the bands he signed. He talked about you know the Buzzcocks, then you, and and I've read this before where it, it, Miles Copeland says that Jim Scafish is a is a fucking genius, and yet in the long run he almost seemed to kind of fail you in a way, especially as it relates to the second album and where he felt that your music was going that, and that perhaps a good bulk of what you came up with for the second record was too controversial. What changed between when IRS signed you 
to you presenting new songs to him after the first record comes out? It's a really good question. Let me answer it. Okay, first, you're right. Miles Copeland would say, Jim Scapefish is a fucking genius all over the world. I'd hear about it from people like, you know, it was just kind of, you know, we'd always hear it. He'd say it to everybody, everybody. So when we did the first album, there was a break between then and the second album. And I think several things happened. The main thing is that between then and when I turned in my second album in November of 1982, IRS Records changed. It became a very commercial label. And when I'm saying commercial, people think commercial. Yes, commercial. And so what had happened is that they became successful. Their business model or their aesthetic model sort of changed. So it was a very different label. So when I did what was originally my second album, and this sounds so simple, I thought, well, I'm going to build off my first album. I thought, well, what do I want to do with the second album? I want to make it more angry. Okay. I want the music to be more expanded. So what we were doing with the second album, we were using a lot of different, there was some electronic vocal things, which was very rare in that kind of music, punk, new wave alternative, as it would be classified. The synthesizer work was more expanded. The power of the band was stronger. And I can say this with all confidence. If somebody liked my first album, they would have liked what I turned in. So not that I would criticize people who do this, but you know, sometimes people will make a record of like the recording street noises and they're saying, that's my record. This was not that kind of a record. In fact, the musicianship was at the highest level. The engineering was incredible because it was engineered by Gary Loizzo, who is a two-time Grammy nominee for his work with Styx. He was also the singer of the American Breed. And Gary Loizzo got an incredible sense of mix and sound. So if you think of the first album, think of it going a little bit further. And it was the song structures were there, the attention to detail, the precision, it was all there. When we recorded in November 1 through November 12, 1982, what was going to be my second album, we did 11 tracks. Everything was recorded in one to two takes. And the album tentatively was titled, I Might Move In Next Door. In fact, Billboard reported that as the title, you know, in a story like, I think it was March or April of 83. So I was feeling really great about the sessions. I mean, Gary Lewiser did a phenomenal job on the engineering. The band did what the band would do. We cut everything in one to two takes. And it took the first album to the next level. So to me, you know, if you're an artist, you could do the same thing over and over, which is cool, not criticizing it. You could go in an absolutely different direction. What we did was build on what the first album did. And then I called Miles Copeland on the phone. And, you know, there wasn't even any sense of, hey, how are you doing? You know, he goes, what's this fucking shit you're singing about? Freaks and Barbie dolls, Barbie dolls and freaks. I won't release it. And I'm like, I mean, you know, because I was used to being sort of the, you know, the renegade rock performer, if you want to call it that. Like in England, would you let your daughter marry Jim Scafish? Meet the world's ugliest pop star, right? All this, we're going to send him around to live next door to you. And so when he said that, it was devastating because 
that's your your people. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it'd be like if your best friend suddenly threw you out of the car. Yeah. You don't know why. Right? What, what the hell did I do? So then what Miles Copeland said, and he was very abrupt with it, said you've got three options. One, we scrap the project. Two, we release an EP of the songs that we, the label, consider acceptable. Or three, we're going to take the songs that we consider acceptable, then you're going to have to record new songs. And that's what ended up happening. So there were three songs from the original session that IRS accepted. That was Wild Night Tonight, I Might Move In Next Door, and She's Taking Her Love Away. Those three. So then we had to record eight more to make the conversation album. So in April of 1983, Miles Copeland came to stay with me. Okay. And I had this tiny little apartment behind my mother's house in East Chicago, Indiana, where I was born and raised. It's right outside of Chicago. It's like five minutes away from the Chicago border. And he comes in and I have this itty bitty little living room, right? The band is there. We're all in this meeting. And he takes out a cassette tape and he plays Billie Jean by Michael Jackson. And he plays Blue Monday by New Order. And he says, I want you to sound like that. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, no, of course not. I, I just, I, what, uh, of course not. I disregarded the suggestion. Right. Right. But I'm saying he told us to do that. So we went in to cut the rest of the conversation album and there was no budget. So some of the songs were being learned as they were being recorded. And I know that's hard to grasp, but say secret lover. And I have it on the 24 track tapes where Secret Lover, and I'm yelling out the chord changes to the band as it's being cut. And those chord changes are kind of complicated. So I'm going, B flat sus four, C7 sus four. You know, it's it's like there's these odd ch changes. It's not just like A, D, right. E, like basic rock changes. And the band cut it. So we were cutting these songs, many of them, as they were being learned. I kid you not. That's how good the band was. Right. So it's like, you know, you have to just go into this moment and and we cut it. And Miles was screaming and yelling and throwing the tapes against the wall, yelling at me during the session. And, you know, it was one of the most difficult experiences of my life, for sure. So then it was done, you know, so we got to that point. And I do want to say, backing up a little bit, I have a lot of love in my heart for Miles Copeland. I am grateful for what we shared. There is a lot of great things that happened through him and then i guess you could say he turned on me and i think what happened is that irs changed and i can't emphasize that enough in other words they became corporate commercially driven so it was a different label it's amazing to me that that a label that could have signed the go-go's or had rem for you know some of their most you know productive early years bands that were making commercial inroads that he couldn't have just seen maybe Skayfish as somewhat of a loss leader and say, let's just release it as is and let an artist be what an artist is. He certainly had musicians in his family. He knew, I think that if he tried doing that with his brother, Stuart, his brother, Stuart would have picked up a, his drum seat and beat him over the head with it. <laughs> I don't think that would ever have flown. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously if he would have did that, the record would have came out and it would have came out as it is. And I mean, the thing about that record is that I, it, I'm going to be releasing all of it. In other words, I have the rights 
to all of my music. I've secured the rights to the publishing, the master recordings, everything. So I'm free to release my entire catalog, which is what I'm doing. So the, you know, we were talking about long before the LGBTQ movement, we did a song on the album and it was the first one he heard where it's called Let's Play Doctor. And I'm, and it's talking about having a sex change, not knowing which gender I am, complete disorientation about male, female, sexuality. And it was a hard-hitting punk song, right? Yeah. And I mean, he heard it. That was it. That was the first one. So it leads off with, you know, this. And I thought, you know, we talked about the coming decline of the American dream, which I saw 40 years before it happened, which is where we're at now. We talked about pedophilia. We talked about all of these things. And just to let you know, Sign of the Cross from Urga Music War is going to be included in the album. I'm so excited to hear about that. It's also going to be uh, you know, re-released. The, the reissues that have come out already are, are fantastic. But you talked about obtaining the rights to this music. You know, considering that IRS never really allowed any, like the, the first album to be reissued or reprinted over the years and, and allow it to be largely out of print and out of circulation, the fact that you're able to go and get the rights to that music is pretty remarkable. And I know it's not just as simple as a couple of phone calls. It's a long process to get that back into your possession. What was that process like for you? Well, you know, it started with the idea of me being naive on a business level so irs never released my first or second album on cd or digital they never followed up with vinyl pressings it sat off the you know on the shelf out of print for 40 years i mean at this point it's like it's 40 years basically right so i had thought well maybe i could just put it out and then of course enter the lawyers and they told me no you can't you signed away your rights. So what ended up happening, I tried to negotiate with the different powers that would be, because by that time, IRS was owned by EMI, then later by Universal. Okay, so with the first album, I tried to talk to EMI. That didn't work. So what it is, is there's a law that Congress enacted that allows people who have sur uh, surrendered their rights to attain them back 30 years after. It's a termination notice. Now, it's more complicated than just that. It has to be done in a very precise way and in a very precise window of time. And so I got a lot of great lawyers together, and that's what I did. I terminated the rights to the first album and the second album. And when I did it, I also terminated the rights to the audio recording of Sign of the Cross, because mm. that also was not in print. You know, that's that's been out of print since what? decades yeah. so no one gets to hear it so what it is is when i terminated the rights the government has approved my termination so it's official right i have the rights back i bought out the publishing which is a different thing paid off everybody got all that done so now i was able to obtain it you could say in a hostile way it wasn't like a handshake and let's do it but i was able to do it legally and get it done you know because having the right attorneys I was able to get it done. Obviously, I didn't know the legalities of it. But when I did it, I was very, very excited. And the reason being is, okay, no one's heard this music. And it was even like fans of mine would say, oh, you don't want your music out there. What the hell's wrong with you? And I'd like want to choke them because it's like <laughs> it wasn't me who didn't want the music out there. I would have loved to have the music out there. You know, when you create music and you really care about it, it's a big, big part of you. 
you know, for better or for worse, emotionally, but it was a big part of me. So when I did obtain the rights back to this, I reissued the first album. And what I was excited about with the first album reissue is I was aware that if, say, a record label at that point, it would have been EMI, would have put it out. They would have just Xeroxed the cover and just put it out. And it would yeah. have been a piece of crap. Okay. I was able to get with a fantastic vinyl pressing in Chicago, Smash Plastic Pressing. Excellent. They looked at every record that they pressed. We did a limited edition, numbered, autograph only, but the records are really well done. And that's what makes me happy. It's like, okay, you could say in the cliche sense, it's better late than never. And I would say, I'm at least grateful that it's out there for the fans. And now with the second album, what I decided to do, instead of releasing two albums, like the tracks that they hated and the conversational, I'm putting together as one package. So it's going to be a double album. Now, I originally was going to title it Conversation and the Music They Wouldn't Let You Hear. Now, I decided to change the title because I thought, well, it's a long title. It might get truncated online. And then if it's on Spotify, how does anybody know when the music they wouldn't let you hear begins? So what I did is I changed the title to Conversation and the Rejects. So then all of the rejected tracks in parentheses are going to say Rejects next to them. So you have Let's Play Doctor, Rejects, Barbie Doll Dreamhouse, Rejects, Executive Exhibitionist, Rejects. And so that way it, it makes it very, very clear. So it's 21 tracks. Nine of them have never been released. And what's exciting is that I happen to have possession of those tapes all along. They've never even been reissued on an underground level. So it's not like that there's somebody who bootlegged the rejects tracks. They've never been out there. Never. Amazing. And there's a, and there's a live track that I have, uh, Beefcake Touch, Chicago's first queer punk song and one of the first queer punk songs in the world written in 1976. We were on tour with the police XTC and UB40 mm. and it was filmed and that was done in France. That track is going to be a bonus track with sign of the cross. So it's 21 tracks, nine of which have never been heard before. You know, when I talk about the first one, cause I, and I can't, I can't wait for the, 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 the conversation and the rechecks to come out. I can't wait for it. The thing that I find so interesting about the, the, the first album, and I, and I know these songs were done in one or two takes at the time of, of, of the re initial recording, but what is a fascinating to me is that when you listen to it, the way it was reissued and remastered, all I can think of is this album sounds like it could have come out yesterday. And you can't say that about any other record that comes out in 19, you know, from music from 1976, 78, 79, all of that does have a certain level of wear and tear. This album did not. So I'm very anxious to hear what's you know, on the on the horizon here, because if, if, there's, if there's any comparison, it should be fantastic. Yeah, and let me say something about that, too, that the second album, all of it, the Rejects and Conversation, it was cut like one or two takes on the fly. The first album was a little bit different because I was left, I was the sole producer. Okay, so it took us a little bit more time to get those tracks correctly. So just for lack of clarity, it wasn't one or two takes on the first album, but it was rushed and it was quick and the record had to be mixed really quick. Now, I'm really excited that you get that it could be done today because I perceive that too. Hmm. Uh, with the mastering, Trevor Sadler, and I'm just so grateful that I have this 
small team of great people. Trevor Sadler's mastered records for Madonna, Nine Inch Nails, Ramsey Lewis, Steely Dan, David Byrne. He is incredible. So he's as good as any mastering person in the world, but he's particularly good for me because he's laid back, he's flexible, he's willing to try anything to make it right. You know, he's going to come in and it's going to sound fantastic. And I might say, you know, do we want to try a little bit of this? And so the strategy with the records is, Jesus, don't compress it. You know, like a lot of bad records, mm -hmm. they just flatten it. You know, like, okay, it's going to sound good on an iPod. And if you're in a restaurant having a beer, it's going to slam in your ears. And I thought, no, don't do that. We're not going to over compress. We're not going to compress it any more than it was originally. So we didn't add any compression. So you hear the intro to Disgracing the Family Name. It's very quiet. Then the band comes in. If that was all compressed, it would sound the same and it would be ghastly. It sound terrible, you know, but I'm really glad that it still holds up and, you know, that it could be done today. And, and that is really exciting because you don't know at the time, obviously, how that's going to hold up. You hope it's going to, but I'm really glad that you perceive it that way. And I've had that said many, many times, and I'm very grateful for that and grateful that we were able to do it. I mean, you could say, oh, well, it didn't become this or it didn't become that. And I'm okay with that because it's the idea that if you do it, that's really what matters. In other words, the art is not compromised. And it's interesting because you'll hear people and they'll sometimes let it slip out where they'll talk about selling out or, you know, whatever. And it takes a piece of you away. It takes a piece of you away. And I'm not saying this in any kind of a pristine or purest kind of a way. I'm saying, but if you're not authentic to who you are, the art will suffer. If you're worried about fitting a radio format, the art will suffer. And, I'm, and I mean, there's a difference between you write a song and the people who are with you say, well, the bridge could be a little better. Or say somebody's listening to it and they say, well, I don't know, the vocal sounds a little forced. That's different. That's trying to make the art really as good as it can be. But this whole thing of it's like playing politics, like selling out and like, well, got to do what you got to do, but you're going to be rich. I never did that. And I was never willing to do that. And that's probably the thing that bothered me the most about the conversation album is because certain journalists accuse me of selling out. But I don't see that. And I, I, I don't I, I, I don't understand that argument at all. I mean, you're an artist. And really, a, you know, a pioneer, if you go back and, and look at what, you know, Skatefish meant to Chicago and to music in general, to me, that music has been denied to people. And to me, that's not you selling out. That's you finally getting the opportunity to share what you've done and say, here's what this was in this moment in 1976 yeah. or 79, Wait. wherever it was. It was like to, to be able to share that, I think, not only has an historical relevance, but I also think... To be shut out and shut down for as long as Skayfish had been because of this thing or that thing is really a shame because this, I mean, I hear this, the first time I heard the record, I'm thinking this could have been a classic, monumental, extremely important record, but that was mm -hmm. denied to you. And I, and I think that that's not about selling out. That's about you being true to your art. And I think there's a major difference between that argument and, and the reality of it. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, is that when that statement was said against me, it's when conversation came out because obviously the label had toned it down, right? Now, if there had been social media, 
I could have said, no, this is what happened. And so that's one of the things I'm really excited because I would say, all you have to do is listen to a little bit less than three minutes of Let's Play Doctor. And I guarantee you, you will never say that I sold out on the conversation record. It was the label who did it. And see, that's where there's a difference between reality and perception because IRS was perceived as this place for misfits and outsiders. And it wasn't. In the very beginning, just in the very beginning, when I was the first American artist right behind the buzzcocks, according to Miles Colton, to be signed, and those first batch of artists, that's when it was that. After that, that was over. In other words, once the Go-Go's became successful, once Miles Colton was not so much in charge because he was busy with the police and all this other stuff, it became a corporate label. And so it's like, well, it could maybe be a smidgen weird, not too much, just a little bit. Maybe it's a little indie, not too much. And I'm like, fuck that. I really wanted to change everything, you know, and that passion is what drives it. And when you go through these kind of ups and downs, and I think, you know, being an artist is a really tough gig, right? Right. It's a tough gig because you know what it is? It's maybe not fair to say this 100%, but if you're really going to be any good at it, you have to live and die with it. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine somebody saying, I think I'm just going to show up and play a little guitar. <laughs> I think I'm just going to write a little tune. You know, it's hard for me to imagine that. And so obviously what happened with the second album was really, really difficult. At the same point, I'm glad that I've kept it going. You know, to whatever degree that I could have always put out records and and performed, whether it was in my solo show whatever I was doing, right? And so it's exciting to me to keep it going because in the end, that's what really matters. I'm really glad that I did not allow myself to implode. Like say after the second album, it could have been real easy to implode. Just like, okay, you didn't even put out the record that you hoped to. It's not doing well. The first album even did better. You know, and I didn't implode. I kept it going. And I refused to give up on getting the rights back. And it took decades because even to get the rights back, there's a window that you have to do it. It's not like you could just say it was released yesterday. You know, it's around a 35 year window. And I'm not exactly sure. I think it's two years before, or two years after you've got a window to do it. Please don't quote me on that. But it was the idea that by the time that came around, I got the rights back. And like I said, because I have Trevor Sadler did a great job with the first album remastering it. And it was really, really good. And I said, look, we're not going to reinvent the wheel here. It stands as it is, but we can improve the fidelity somewhat. And that's the operative phrase, somewhat. You know, forget the compression where everything sounds like super loud and ugly. Forget the idea of trying to make it sound like this or that, it doesn't matter what's selling right now. It's not a hip hop record, right? It's not a pop record. So we made the fidelity better, but still being true to the original. And that was kind of always my vision for the first album and the second album. And when you hear the second album, the fidelity is incredible. And especially because the engineering, the mix, and you know what's interesting, Javier Cruz, my player at the time, you know, and he transitioned into spirit in, in April of 2020. The rejects were his favorite songs we ever did. <laughs> they were his favorite songs. He loved them. So those are coming out. And it's funny because how could I quote Miles Copeland verbatim? 
because everybody in my band used to repeat it. Like if we talk about the second album, they'd be like, what's this fucking shit? Like they'd say it, right? <laughs> so I remembered every single word because everybody would say it like freaks and Barbie dolls. But it's like, and and that was how the band, the band dealt with it, you know? But that, that's what happened with it. I want to ask you real quickly about the uh, the bootleg because I've, I I downloaded it and, and have listened to it. And I think it's really fascinating. I mean, you talked about the level of musicianship of the people in the band. Uh, you know, everyone from, you know, uh, you know, Larry Meiskowitz, uh in particular, just a phenomenal drummer. But you know, you listen to the to how tight that band was and how the enthusiasm in which it was being played. It's a really fascinating look at a at a band that you know many people may not even know. And it's all from a cassette. And it's 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 really interesting how that wound up coming out. And the commentary behind it I thought was really interesting. I, I like the way that you added that component to it as opposed to just laying it out there without some level of explanation context. or context for it. Exactly. Well, you know, thank you for that. I was really excited about the bootleg because the band was so well rehearsed. And as one journalist made fun of it, right? Because there was a point we rehearsed every day. And I mean, the band was great, but we rehearsed every day and i'm not kidding you when i say every day so it was this joke like oh he had the mumps me that i was in a different part of the house which is true and i'm yelling through the microphone to the people in the basement to rehearse like we didn't even get a day off for that right <laughs> so the, it was that level but when you're talking about the musicianship you know the bass player in that band in the beginning was greg sarchet he ended up getting a master's degree from juilliard he plays for the chicago symphony he substitutes for them. He plays for the Lyric Opera. He's played for Tony Bennett. Mm. He was, at the time we did, the. he joined my band. When we started, he was like 16. I was 19. And it was when the Skatefish Band debuted, which was at Club Beginnings in Chicago in February 76. And I was wearing, again, the old ladies, one fashion, one piece bathing suit. And the audience was wrecked. They were wrecked. And one journalist in Chicago said that was the first time he almost got killed, right? <laughs> and so Greg, phenomenal bass player, my Slivic, you know, went on to play with Iggy Pop, considered by people in rock music to be one of the greatest. In other words, and Larry Myslivic, when other people were drugging and fucking and partying, Larry Myslivic was lifting weights. That's what he was doing. Yeah. Okay. When other people were looking to you know, do drugs and all this other nonsense, we rehearsed. And so I'm glad you hear that on bootleg because the band level of precision was very, very high. It's remarkable. It always was. And and you know what it is too? It's exciting that say, you know, little things have always kind of kept it going. I mean, the passion, but say Muddy Waters, Willie Dixon being such strong supporters of mine, Cheap Trick, XTC. And by the way, I did a show with XTC in Boston. Did you really? In October of 80. I would have loved to have seen, I would have loved to see XTC is one of, one of, if not my favorite band of all time. And to, to think of, you know, a, a band that, you know, stopped playing live and you guys, that had to be um, unbelievable. It was a really good show. Also, yeah. I did the rat in October of 77. You know, the red seller, the rat in yep. Boston. Yep. Did that. So, <laughs> XTC, and it was interesting because when we did the European tour with the police, XTC, U2, UB40, Squeeze, Sector 27, and there was other groups as well. Okay, I walked in, and the camaraderie was unreal. 
And XTC, you know, were so nice to me. They listed me as their favorite new group in their tour program. Mm -hmm. They invited me to do their tour with them on the East Coast in 1980. And the kindness, because, you know, I'm thinking, oh, God, these people can treat me like crap. They can get away with it. You know, (laughs) like, what am I going to say? Like, you know, like I'm some weirdo from Chicago and I'm like worried about how they're treating me in London. Right. So XTC was great. Um, there was a point, I wish we would have cell phones at that point. We were on uh, the south of France on the French Riviera and XTC and my band were jamming in a hotel at three in the morning. Oh my God. Together. <laughs> yeah. Together. Yeah. And, and, you know, back then you didn't have those things easily documented. You have to have a camera and all that kind of stuff. Right. But the thing about XTC is they were a great band, a wonderful band. And the thing that shocked me is how down to earth they were. And like when my bass player's bass broke in France, Sting let us use his bass. He said, here, use my bass. It wasn't like this is the holy bass or <laughs> like it's a sacred bass. Right. And that camaraderie was amazing. Like I said, I will always cherish XTC. And I love them deeply. And I love Miles Copeland. You know, I appreciate what I went through with Miles Copeland. And of course, there was amazing moments and really jaw-dropping moments that were difficult, but still, nonetheless, I'm grateful for my relationship with him, and I'd be there for him if he needed me. Do you have uh, any idea or indication when the uh, when the conversation is going to be released, or is it still too soon to to know that for sure? I don't have a firm release date, but we're going to do it this year. We're in the process right now of, you know, we're going to be getting the vinyl done and CDs. I'm going to release it in all formats and. You know, definitely, I would like to definitely get it this year, but I'm hoping it's not at the very end of the year. So somewhere coming into the middle to the fall of the year, we're hoping to be able to do it. And, you know, I've heard the tracks. I'm very, very happy with the way that they sound. And I can't wait for you to hear them, you know. And then beyond that, I've got at least three to five other albums from before to release. Some of them that had been released, some of them that have never been released. So those are going to come out and I'll try and do those in anniversary years. And then of course, at the same time working on new music and with it really where I want it to go. And what I mean by that is, okay, let's say I could do music just like I did 40 years ago, but I really want to go further. And I'm not trying to say it to be hyperbolic or anything, but I want it to be able to be forward, you know, as best as I can. And like I said, I'm more I'm totally thrilled about doing it and really thrilled about conversation in the rejects, especially because I thought, well, give everybody everything like a marketing person would say, well, don't do that because conversation is a little different. And and I thought it doesn't matter. You know, here it is. It's the whole thing. You can get the whole package plus sign of the cross, which really glad that's finally going to be out. Jim, this has been I, I have to say this has been a really interesting conversation. and and I. I'm very sincere when I say that I have absolutely fallen in love with the music that you've released so far. I, I'm, I'm so excited that new stuff is coming around. I really do appreciate the time today. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Oh, my God. It's such a pleasure talking to you. And I also want to say to everyone who's joined us, thank you for being here with us. Please stay safe out there. And I look forward to connecting with you again. It's been wonderful. And I'll keep you posted. And to everybody, take care. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Jim. You too. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. 
The name of the upcoming reissue from Skayfish is called The Conversation and the Rejects. It'll be available later this year. You can find all of Jim's music available on Bandcamp and other streaming services. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to share it, like it, review it, and tell all your friends about it. And you can reach me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again for listening to Banksy's Musical Podcast.